If you have your Bibles this evening, and you would, open them with me to the book of Zephaniah. And uh, one of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. We are just about all the way through uh, the minor prophets. Just a few more weeks uh, to go. Uh, and in the book of Zephaniah, uh, we know that Zephaniah was a prophet at uh, one of the last high points in the southern kingdom. Uh, in the Bible, the Word of God says in Zephaniah chapter 1, telling us when his prophetic ministry was. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amari, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. If you would like to, to flip over to 2 Kings with me, chapter 22, or it will be on the screen behind me, we see about the reign of Josiah. Uh, Josiah's father was an evil and wicked man. Josiah's grandfather was an evil and wicked man. And the southern kingdom had had over five to six decades of idolatrous, wicked leaders. And Josiah comes to the throne, and you will see here in chapter 22, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, and the daughter of Abadai of Boscoth. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Josiah's reign was, if you are looking down below that in your Bible, we're not going to read it for the sake of time tonight, was when the book of the law was found. Now, most of us cannot imagine what it would be like to not have the written copy of God's Word in every room in our house, on every device, in every corner that you could possibly... In our house, we have Bibles everywhere, more than we probably should even have. We probably ought to send them to some uh, foreign country or place that there aren't any, but we have every kind of Bible you could ever want. But in this day and age, the nation had forgotten about God. They had forgotten about the true way of doing things. And they were just going through the motions. They were doing what they'd always done. And the priests were offering sacrifices to God. But yet they were also worshiping Baal and the pagan gods. I think this is interesting because most likely Zephaniah's ministry would have started at the beginning of King Josiah's reign. And when King Josiah is is told that the book of the law has been found. And when they began to read it in verse 11, if you have your copy of God's word with you, now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. And I've been asking myself, how would this eight-year boy who has grown up in a pagan culture, in a pagan kingdom, where would have he heard something that would have stirred up in him? That's probably God's Word. There's no probably to it. It is God's Word. And I am guessing because Zephaniah was a relative of Josiah, I'm guessing that he has been preaching this message that he probably said something like, wait a second, I've heard something like this from who? Zephaniah. And it gives me great hope because even in the midst of a pagan culture, a pagan family, the word of God being proclaimed 
plans the seeds. It implants it in the heart. And Josiah hears the word of God, the word of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and he probably says, wait a second, I've got a crazy older uncle that's been talking about the same thing, preaching the same message that we need to repent, that we need to return, we need to get right with the Lord, or judgment is coming. We don't know what part of the law he would have read, but if it could have been something like from the book of Deuteronomy, where if you'll obey my commandments and you'll follow my statutes, I'll be your God, I'll bless you. Because when we come to the book of Zephaniah, we see the same message. This message that God has for the southern kingdom. And if you're taking notes tonight, and I hope that you will, we see in chapter 1 here the judgment of God on Israel. Now, I want to say this tonight because as we read through the Old Testament, it is important to know that the Jewish people were God's chosen people. The promises of Genesis and all of the Old Testament books was applicable to them. The correction, the curses, the judgment of God was directed to them. And just because we now are the church and we are so privileged, I do not believe that Israel got all the correcting and the judgment and we get all of the promises. I believe that God has a purpose and a plan for Israel. And when you read this book, we see here in chapter 1, the judgment of God on Israel. Starting in verses 2 and 3, just for the sake of time tonight, we'll read, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. And you can read the rest of this chapter and look at how in detail God is going to bring judgment on this group of people. But really, I thought it was kind of mute because he literally says in verse 2, I will utterly consume everything. And then he goes to list the everything. And so while it's beneficial and you should read it just for the sake of time, just put in your mind that God is going to bring judgment on every aspect of their life. From where they get their food, to where they live, to how they make their income. Everything that involves their life, God says, judgment is coming. And this is the message that I believe Josiah would have heard as he is growing up especially after he becomes king and the wicked influence of his father and grandfather is gone, Zephaniah is here proclaiming the word of the Lord. That judgment is coming to Judah. Now that might mean something to Josiah because he is the king of the southern kingdom. He is the king of Judah, of the all Israel that is left. And so if you have been hearing a man preach that judgment is coming, the judgment of God is coming, someone finds the book of the law and whatever they read, he says, I've heard that message before. What should I do? And we see here in that book of 2 Kings that he followed after the Lord. He did exactly what God had said to him. And so tonight as we look at this, what brought the judgment of God on Israel? idolatry, wickedness, sin. But even in the midst of all that heartbreak, I want to show you in Zephaniah chapter 2. 
Zephaniah chapter 2, we see the Lord offers mercy to His people. The Lord offers mercy to His people. Here in verses 1 through 3. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. And that one for undesirable means shameless. But the decree is issued. Before the decree is issued. Or the day passes like chafe. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Shall seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. What he is telling them is judgment's coming, but repent. The Bible, when you read through the Old Testament, you will always see the corrective hand of God. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. But what you will never not see is God telling them, repent. Repent. You saw it in the story of Jonah as he preached to the city of Nineveh. You can read it throughout the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament judges. Over and over again, God tells them that your sin will have consequences. But we see here that God says, I will be merciful if you will seek mercy. Friends, tonight I believe this is one of the greatest messages that we have for the world that we are living in. We must be bold. When the world looks at us and tells us things like, you have to let me choose which bathroom to use, which sports to play, who to marry, where and what I am going to love, we must remember to tell a lost and dying world that God's word says this. You say, Jesus never spoke on those topics. You are mistaken. Jesus quoted the garden and said that God brought him Eve. And so what you see in the garden is God made one man and one woman. He put them together in covenant love and said that love is to be till death do you part. It is the example that he gives us. But yet we must also tell a lost and dying world that you can repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Experience the forgiveness and mercy of God. What has happened as a culture has decided to hate the things of God is the church has grown silent. I can promise you as you're sitting out at a meal eating, talking about the things of God, there are certain topics that come up that God's word says that you whisper about. And there are other things that you probably will boldly talk about. I am guessing tonight even in your own family, As many families as here tonight, there are individuals in each and every one of your family that are pushing the envelope on how bold you want to be at a family gathering. How bold you want to be at a family reunion. But what we see here is that Zephaniah says, listen, judgment is coming. You are sinful, you are wicked, you are broken, you have rebelled against God, but don't forget, you can make this right with Him. You can get right with the Lord. And look what it says there in verse 3. He, the Bible always promises you salvation. But it doesn't always promise you earthly protection. 
Don't miss that tonight. If you ask for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be forgiven. But that does not mean that the consequences of your sin on this earth go away. And that's what we see here. He says, maybe God will spare us as a nation. Or maybe He will just forgive us, but judgment's still coming. And that's what you need to be reminded of tonight, that sin always has consequences. Sin always hurts a marriage. Sin always hurts a family. Sin always hurts a church. But yet what we need to be reminded of is if you want mercy, you can have it. Third thing I want to show you tonight from this passage of Scripture is not only does the Lord judge Israel, and not only does the Lord offer mercy to His people, the Lord shows us His judgment to all nations. You see, as we looked at in Habakkuk last time that we were together on a Sunday night, his plea to God was, Lord, this doesn't seem fair. And God says, I'm going to send someone that's going to destroy your enemy, but I'm also going to send someone that's worse than them. And we looked at how he cried out to the Lord in in that beautiful book of Habakkuk. But here, starting in verse 4 of chapter 2, all the way to chapter 3, verse 8, and I won't uh, read it all for the sake of time. But you can read in verse 4, it says, For Gaza shall be forsaken. You can go down in verse 5 and see the Cherethites. You can go down in 5 and see the Philistines. You can flip over on to verses 8 and see Moab and Ammon. You can go down in verse 9 and it shall be like Sodom and it shall be like Gomorrah. You can go down in verse 12 and see the Ethiopians. It goes on and on and on and it mentions every nation that surrounds Israel. And the reason is, is because God did not want anyone thinking that He does not see the wickedness of all people. God sees the wickedness even if the atheist doesn't admit that there is a God. God sees the wicked uh, and sin of those living openly against Him even if they never step foot in a church. That's why it always cracks me up when someone says, well, I wouldn't talk that way in church. If you wouldn't talk that way in church, you shouldn't talk that way out of church. The Spirit of God lives within you. My personal favorite is, well, I shouldn't say that in front of a preacher. You give me long enough, I'll probably say something I shouldn't say either. But I am no more spiritual. I am no more godly. It's just the Spirit that lives within me. If you're saved, lives within you. And what God is showing them here is it might look like to you that the Egyptians have won. It might seem like the enemy has been spared. But God says never forget, no matter what it looks like in the day that you are living, that He knows, that He sees, that He is keeping track of, that people do not avoid the judgment and righteousness of God. But the last thing I have tonight, and it's a longer point, please Don't get excited. It's God's promises to His people. As you know, I'm teaching through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, and if you don't know that, we'd love to have you. um, But uh, what we're seeing is God at work in the world in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, the Bible talks about a millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign. The Lord will set up His kingdom on this earth and deal specifically with the Jewish people 
and the world. And many times people will say, well, Jake, I'm an all-millennialist. I don't believe in the millennial. I don't believe in the earthly kingdom of Christ and that nature. Their book of Revelation chapter 20 is all symbolism. I have no problem with that, but yet then you have to admit that the entirety of the Old Testament is probably symbolism, that there is something missing. I want you to write these down if you have time, all of the Old Testament references to the kingdom of God, that Christ reigning on the earth. 2 Samuel, Psalm chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 48. Give you a second. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 33. The book of Ezekiel. The book of Daniel. The book of Hosea. The book of Joel. The book of Zephaniah. And the book of Zechariah. All reference Christ ruling, reigning the kingdom of God. And so we don't base our theology on one chapter in the book of Revelation. We base it on the entirety of of the Old Testament. That is why the Antichrist will be able to rise to power because even to this day, if you were to listen to the Jewish prayers, and I'll pronounce this to you and you can look it up later, the Molkath Shemayan. It is a prayer and a belief that they are praying for the coming of the Messiah to rule on the earth. That is why the Antichrist is able to gain a foothold with the Jewish people because they are looking for their king that is promised in the Old Testament over and over and over and over and over again that he's coming to fulfill all of the promises that were given in the Old Testament. But yet we know that Christ has come that He has taken our punishment that He has taken our shame that He is building His church But yet, there is coming a day, and we see this in verses 8 through 14, where Zephaniah says that God will honor His promises to the Jewish people, to the city of Jerusalem. And so we start in verse 8, and this is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. It says in verse 8, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Then I will restore to the people a pure language that I may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And that day you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds. Stop right there. We know that that cannot have been fulfilled because the Jewish people are still rejecting the Messiah. They are still believing and worshiping in a system that is, by according to the New Testament, not enough in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave you in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. A remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. Even after the Jewish people came back after the captivity of Babylon, even after the nation of Israel has been returning up until this very day, this cannot be applied. 
They are still sinners. They are still in need of a Savior. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the only possible response to this when the people of God have no unrighteousness is when the redeemed of the Lord worship and reign with Him during the millennial kingdom. It goes on and says, Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. That would say today that the Jewish people or the church, if you believe these promises apply to the church, have no sin. And I've been here long enough and been a believer long enough and been a person long enough to know that I am still struggling with sin. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. If you know anything about the nation of Israel tonight, you know that they literally have built an iron dome to protect themselves from the constant threat of the world around them. For a small piece of property that holds no value at all, from an earthly standpoint, the world is always watching. The world is always fighting over. There is always disagreements. And why is that? I think I'd be fighting over someplace beautiful like Florida, somewhere wonderful like the mountains. But this small piece of land in the middle of all of the Islamic world is the focus of almost everything that you will ever see. And it starts in verse 14 again. This song of celebration for when the king is reigning. Sing, O daughter of Zion... Shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgment. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. If these promises are fulfilled in the New Testament church, then we should believe what Joel tells us, that there is no problems that your best life is now. You shouldn't expect loss and heartache and betrayal because why? No disaster will come. Everything's great. Everything's perfect. And if you were to look around the world tonight, you would see that that is not true. It goes on in verse 16. It says, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. That's twice in three verses that statement's been made. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise, and don't miss this, among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. When you read that, it's pretty obvious how amazing 
how powerful, how special, how glorious this day is going to be. But friends, this is not what we have seen in human history. It's not even what we see today. And so when we read a text like this, how does this unfold? When does God truly fulfill all of the Old Testament promises that we just read about in Zephaniah? Well, if you would like to, you can flip over to Revelation chapter 20 with me. Revelation chapter 20, I want you to listen to how it is described. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his head. Some will say, well, you can't chain up the devil, you can't physically restrain him. Jude chapter 6 talks about the fallen angels being restrained in the bottomless pit. It's not an unbiblical concept. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and sat a seal on him. Some would say seals have no power in the Bible, but if you've read Revelation chapter 5, 6, and 7, you will see that there are seven seals that bring the judgment of God. It goes on and says, So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. Sounds a lot like Zephaniah chapter 3. This glorious day for the people of God. Worshipping in Jerusalem. Worshipping with no enemies. Worshipping with no fear. Worshipping with no pain. There is the belief that at this time, as I said, the millennial is not a literal event that it is just the church age. But the strange struggle I see with that is the Bible does no, in no fashion teach us that Satan is bound at this time. In Acts chapter 5, when it's talking about Ananias and Sapphira, it says, why have you let Satan influence you? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it talks about Satan's influence. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it talks about Satan and what he is doing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, it talks about the work of what Satan is doing. So either Satan is bound or he is not. And if you believe that he's bound now, then why is he attributed in these four verses by Paul, by the writer of Acts, by Peter, that he is at work still? When the promise is, when Jesus sits on the throne of David, he sits on the throne in Jerusalem, that Satan is not an issue. And he at one point, after this glorious 1,000 year reign, where Christ fulfills his promises, not because of who the Jewish people are, not because of what the nation of Israel is, but because of who God is. His faithfulness to his word. And it says in verse 4, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, those who went through the tribulation period and were martyred. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Six times in this chapter it references one thousand years. And they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. But the rest of the dead, the lost, the unbelieving, did not live again until the thousand year were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection. 
Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with Him 1,000 years. If you read the book of Revelation, you know that in chapter 19, Satan, the Antichrist, have rebelled and all of the world has taken up arms against the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ steps out of heaven and destroys His enemies. The Bible tells us on that day that every lost person that is in rebellion against God will be killed. Every single one of them. Christ will then move into chapter 20, setting up His 1,000 year millennial reign. But look what it says in verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from prison and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. You say, Jake, what, well, who are these people that are going to be led astray? I thought the saved could not be confused. I thought the saved could not be corrupted. Well, most commentaries believe that those who survived the tribulation period, who were not uh, crucified, who made it through, will begin to repopulate the earth, and they will be in rebellion. But it's still not up for sure. It goes on and says, Then they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And this is a unique event. One that we saw with Elijah the prophet. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forevermore. See, Jake, I think we've went a long way from Zephaniah chapter 3. Not if you believe they're describing the same event. The Lord making things right. You see, that's the greatest principle that we have as believers is the fact that God honors His promises. That God's Word has never failed. That the reason that I know that if I ask for forgiveness that God will forgive me is because He promised. The reason that I know that I'm in the palm of His hand and I cannot be separated from His love is not because of me, but because of Him. The fact that I know that when I leave this world and I stand before Him, that I will be able to enter into His kingdom of eternal rest is not because of who I am, but because He said, My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And so friends, whether the promise is to the church, the promise is to Israel, the promise is to the lost for their judgment, you need to get to this one simple fact that if God said it, you should believe it. If God said it, He will do it. And that is the message that we need, not just for us on a Sunday night, but our children that we are raising in the nurture and admonition of the Lord the loss that we are trying to talk to, the people that we are trying to witness to, it is always about what does God's Word say? What is God's truth in every situation? Now, tonight I am fully aware that not everyone will agree with my take on this, and that is okay. We're still on the same team, but I sure hope I'm right. Why? Because I want to see the promises of God unfold just like He said. For His glory. Why is it that I believe Josiah heard these words and was stirred by God? Because he had heard them before. 
there had been a prophet preaching to the nation. But if things don't change, judgment's coming. Now, if you know anything about the nation of Israel and you know anything about King Josiah, King Josiah's revival did not outlast his life. When Josiah was killed in battle, the nation immediately went back to their wickedness, went back to their evil, and God brought judgment on the nation. And so tonight, if you think just because you're godly, the next generation will be godly, it's not the case. You think, well, Jake, I am faithful and and I am godly, and so it has to be passed on to my children. It doesn't. What does it take for the people of God to influence the next generation? The home. This was a king-led revival. Can't be a king-led revival in this country. It cannot start with the political party that you like. Because political parties change. It can't be the governor that you voted for or voted against that brings revival. Because people will do whatever it takes to take the path of the least resistance. But tonight what I do want you to believe is this. If revival starts in you and in your home, if you teach it to your children, not because the government tells you to, Not because a political leader tells you to, but because you repent and you want to see God work in your home. That's where it starts. That's how it goes from one generation to the next. When you and I are the people of God in our homes, in our workplaces, with our nieces and nephews, with our grandchildren, When God truly gets a hold of us and we believe His promises. So tonight, what is my challenge to you? I don't really know. As I've studied this for the last three or four weeks, all I have thought to myself is, Lord, how can I impact my children? I have no desire to run to be governor. I have no desire to run to be president run for Congress or any high office that this land might hold. But what I do have a desire to do is lead my children to the Lord. To have a marriage that when they look for a husband someday, as terrible and as expensive as that's going to be, that they would look for a man like their father. And that be a good thing, not a bad thing. And so tonight, my challenge to you is, as an individual, repent. Make sure that you are right with the Lord tonight. And whatever you're going through, whether good, bad, the ups or downs, trust His promises, knowing that He will be faithful to them until the very end. What does that mean for you tonight if you're here and you're lost? You say, oh, Jake, this crowd is Sunday night people. There ain't no lost people here. You don't know that. But tonight, the Bible says that you are a sinner. That you have broken the law of God and rebelled against Him. But He loves you. Came and died on the cross for you. Was buried and rose again. 
And tonight, as the conviction of the Holy Spirit is dealing with you, if you will repent of your sins, that means admit to God that you are a sinner, that you are willing to turn from them. You believe what the Bible says about Jesus and will confess Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. He will save you. And that is a promise from God's Word. Father, we thank you so much tonight for your word, for your promises. Lord, thank you for giving us the privilege to look at how you've dealt with your people. Lord, as wicked and as rebellious and as stubborn as they were, Lord, yet you have been faithful. Lord, we thank you as your church, as we have seen you at work in it. Lord, have you have grafted us in, as the Bible tells us. Lord, while we were on the outside, disobedient rebels, that you have made a way for us to be saved. And so tonight, Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in all nations and all people groups. But Lord, I do pray for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people, Lord, that are trusting in other things, but yet need you. Father, I pray that you would help this church to have a desire to reach the lost, no matter the background, no matter the ethnicity, that all people, Lord, need you and your forgiveness. And Lord, we ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.